there's a couple of stories in the Bible um, that you read and you realize as you look at it, God's heart is breaking. God's heart's breaking. So, you know, a couple of them just to, just to get us going is Noah's flood, the story of Noah's flood. God looks in at mankind and he sees there's evil everywhere and he looks down and he's like, oh, I wish I'd never bothered. So it says, I wish I'd never even bothered making this world. It's such a mess. And you see his heart breaking because mankind goes away from him. You get that image of the cross where everything goes dark as Christ dies. And you see the heart of God breaking as wicked men take the one good man and kill him. And this story, this text, this moment in Israel's history, the story of the golden calf, you see the trail of what God has done for this people, this awesome deliverance, this awesome redemption, this awesome salvation story. And you get to this point and they just make a golden cow. God has done everything for them and they turn their back on him in this moment. We're going to look at the subject of idolatry. Idolatry is anything that takes the place God should have in your life. Anything that ends up in the spot where God should be in your life. And I'm going to emphasize the word for my benefit and for your benefit. And it's going to be awkwardly personal because I've realized that when you talk about something like this, the best way for me to do it to not appear hypocritical is to talk about the things that I struggle with. So you're going to hear more about me than it will feel comfortable, I think. But I want you, I'm happy to do that because I want you to get this. I want you to get the significance of idolatry. So we're going to see two things. This story shows us what people are like. We're going to see just how quick mankind forgets about God. God does this amazing thing, the plagues, the rescue, everything. And in a heartbeat, mankind turns away from God. And we're going to see what idolatry is really like. We're going to expect it to be this shiny, obvious thing. And hopefully, I've got three points we're going to work through. We're going to see the way that idolatry gets right under your skin. And it's crippling us. And it's killing us. And it's empty. And it's no good. So the first, I don't know if we could, uh, we're going to go through a bit of the text, sort of verse 1 through uh, 6. And you sort of read through this text and you'd sort of be, you'd sort of think you've maybe never had an idol of any description in your life when you read through what this looks like it looks so pagan and so distant from our lives let's read through what it says I think it's verse 2 take off the gold earrings that your wives your sons and your daughters are wearing so they've been quick to make gold earrings having got out of Egypt and bring them to me this is Aaron talking so all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron he took what he took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day, the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterwards, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. So you, you read through this and you think, well, I'm good. I've never done this. This is, this is nuts. And if I, if I was going to do it, I would know that I was doing it because it's nuts. It's like this bright, shiny thing that I'm bowing down and worship. It's like, uh, try to imagine 
how he could perceive this. It's like, David, are we, am I too, are we too young to remember David Cassidy? I remember my mum talking about David Cassidy. Maybe these people of a certain age. Take that similarly, where you see the, the, the gorgeous guy who can sing and you just scream at him. We, think, we maybe think that's idolatry and we think, oh, well, I don't do that. One of the things you've got to notice in this text is that this is not just, we've got to draw ourselves into the text. It's not just some wild pagan act. Think about, think about what these people know. Think about the culture that they've experienced for the last 400 years in Egypt. Think about what they're familiar with. Think about how they've coped through life and how they've seen other people coping through life. They've coped by worshipping gods. They go back to what they know. It's not some crazy new thing. Idolatry. In this instant, it, they are going back to the familiarity of what they knew. Going back to finding, you know, there are people in a vulnerable spot and they're going back to what they know to cope. So a question to ask yourself, if you're thinking, well, I don't worship the idols. A question to ask yourself when you're trying to think about what your idol is, to find your idol, what is the one thing in the world that you couldn't live without? Thing that you just couldn't get away from, that's been in your life, that's, 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 that's a gift from the, from, the, from the people of the world and it's just so awesome and you can't get away from it. I take a second to think through that and you might be getting near to finding out what your idol is. Now what they do is not, another thing to point out, digging around at what idol, idols are, what they do is not a good, they don't do good things, but I don't think I don't think the whole error is in the things that they do. I don't think it's down to the specifics of the dancing and the revelry. They're not doing good things. The big error, what makes this idolatry, and I want us to really clock this, is that they take, it takes the place of God in their lives. So they've gone from having God in that place, and God's now, well, I don't know where he's God. God's down in a different place. And these other things have taken that place. So that's the sort of first point I want to make about what idolatry is. It's life's affections. This is the first point of the text. This is life's affections, life's loves in the wrong order. It's when our affections are disordered. That's the error here. God who wants to be number one, wants to be be all and end all, that's what he wants, and he drifts down to somewhere else, and they replace him with revelry and with a golden calf and with other things. This is the challenge for us. Here's a quote. Uh, Tim Keller references it in his book. Um, and he's, he's referencing St. Augustine. And he says this, A just and holy life requires one to be capable of an objective and impartial evaluation of things, to love things, that is to say, in the right order, so that you do not love what is not to be loved or fail to love, what is to be loved or have greater love for what should be loved less. This is a, ages and ages ago, but it rings true today, saying you need to get your affections in the right order. That's what idolatry is. Some of the things that become idols in our lives, we don't see as inherently bad. They start off as pretty good things, but in the wrong spot in the journey, you know, something that you should love an ordinary amount becomes the main thing, then it becomes an idol and it becomes dangerous. Us. So here we go with the first bit of overly personal information to get you all back. Four things that have probably since I've been about 18 must be just about the most important things to me in my life. So bear with, bear with on this. Number one, this is horrific. 
But if you know me well, and Dan's not in the room, my brother and my wife's not in the room, so you might not know this, health, my health. And sometimes it manifests itself in a really good way. So I go out running quite a lot now. I try and eat well at different points in my life. It's been a good thing. And it's something that is inherently a good thing. We should be, you know, we should look, God's given us this gift of a body. We should try and look after it. But it's at seasons of my life, it has, I mean, you can ask Judah, it has destroyed me. It's become something that has been the number one thing. So health. Second thing, my career. Um, so left school, not, di- didn't do great. I was a bit of a clown. Not even that good of a clown, really. Just kind of disappeared at school, got lost underneath it. And I've always had that kind of little bit of a, I'm going to show them. Do you know what I mean? That, and it started off as, a, I'm going to show them. And so I think work and the idea of work is a good thing. And even that, I'm going to be determined to work hard. I had sort of that. But where it ended up with me was that I was working 24-7. And the other thing I had going on in my life, kids came along. Kids, you get this little bundle of joy, these become your idols. You know what it's like when you get one of these, this little mini me to look at, you take this thing and you go, oh, this is the best thing ever. So this comes along. Fourth thing, and it's, I'm naming it fourth, so you go, my faith. My faith. Um, this faith I've got in this God that saved me, changed my life, bought me back, forgiven me, won me over. There, four things. Been really important. Different seasons of my life, I would say for big whack of my 20s, even a little bit in my 30s, what stuck at the top of there was, and it's insane, was health. I got, I think I got what you call health anxiety. I think that's what you call it. I was a bit unbalanced, but it, it stemmed from me just really wanting to live for a long time and that becoming really important. And it, it stemmed from something that was quite a good thing that just became a really corrupt thing. And I, through my 20s, I had health and um, an attitude problem about work, working every hour. And what, what the, the, out, the upshot of that was my kids didn't have a great dad. And I, I don't know where my faith was at all. And if that route carried on, I don't, I don't know where we'd be now. Maybe I, I stay on that route if God doesn't intervene by his grace. And I don't, I don't rule out the fact that it might happen again. My, I grew up with my kids don't like me because I'm never there. And I'm a weird guy who worries about his health all the time. Because something that should be number five or six finds its way to number one or number two. That's the first thing. Life's loves in the wrong order. Disordered affections. They'll break your heart when you get them wrong, idols. Second thing is when wrong things become ultimate things. And the text gives us a bit of, a bit of help as to how we can identify these things here. Um, and there's a sense the people in the, in the desert, they, they get a little bit of a panic on. And as I've said earlier on, they run back to the familiar ground that they, that they, that, that they knew, something that saved them. I think we're quick to condemn them. The Bible does condemn them in a sense. You know, they forget God straight away. But they do, I think, what most of us would do. We look to cope and we look to survive. And, when, and we're so guilty of this. When God feels a little bit distant, what do we do? We run back to something else, something that we know, some way to cope, something from this life that we've learned. And that's what they do. So another way to sort of figure out what your idol might be, ask yourself the question, what are you a slave to? What, is, what have you learned from the world? What experience have you had in the world that you just could not cope without or get past? What thing do you look for to save you? 
What is the thing that saves you? You want to find out your idol. So I'm just going to root around two things. Two things that I think are kind of contemporary problems for people. It's not exhaustive. It's not all that there are to worry about in life. But it's just two things. The first one is popularity. We can all have a bit of empathy for that, can't we? Everyone wants at least one person to say, you're all right, don't we? We all want a little bit of that. We probably want, probably want more of that. So I, and I think this is kind of a problem that's always been here. It, there's, there's the threat of it becoming an idol has always existed. But I think in the generation that we live in today, with the way that the world's changed and text developed, man, that has, the, the possibility for needing to be popular has just gone through the roof. TV gets invented 100 years ago, something like that, and you go from, you get, everyone has this opportunity for 15 minutes of fame, and everyone's exposed to that a little bit. The invention of social media and smartphones means that the chance to be super popular to go viral, that's an expression, right? That's what they say out there. To be super trendy, to have everybody like you exists in your pocket all of the time. You could post something hilarious or do a selfie that everybody loves and the opportunity for you to reach sort of superstardom exists the whole time. Equally, the possibility that nobody might like you and everybody might ignore you and dismiss you exists in your pocket as a reality all the time. And it's meant that and I don't know what the, out, what the outcomes of, of social, so psychological studies into mobile phones will be in, in later generations, but it's meant that we have become that these things, and I'm not just knocking them because I've got one and they're awesome and they, they, they help me to remember stuff and they help me to ring people up, they get me out of enough sticky situations, but they, they bring to bear the threat of popularity becoming an idol like never before. And it's too much pressure for some people. And the danger is, when this thing flips from being a way that you communicate with somebody to being the main source of affirmation in your life, the thing that you need to get you through, the first thing you check on a morning, your inability to not walk, and I do this, it's my God as well, walk down the street like this, what's wrong with us? People, you know, imagine, we can't, how many of us walk down the street like that with our phones? Like that, we're so dependent on our phones. The potential for us to make a God out of popularity is so great. And when it flips from just being a text to being something that we need, it will kill us. It will break our hearts if it's where all our hopes and ambitions are. And you, like me, will know people that are Christians who will say, yeah, I'm a believer and it's Jesus Christ that saves me. And yet, you know that it's the affirmation that comes on the phone that is really the thing that saves us. What are idols? Next thing, and here's my, here's my biggie. The little bundles of joy that you get to have that come into your life. I've got three of them, and they're dotted around in there. And when somebody puts one of those under your nose, and I wasn't paternal at all. You know, I hadn't given this... Jude was organized and she was on it and she had a plan. I, had nothing. I, was, I was along for the ride and I had nothing. And then I got this baby underneath my arms and it's a little mini you and as it grows up it's better looking than you and it can achieve more than you can achieve and you can fulfill all your ambitions through it, right? Becomes a God. And, I, and I'm, I've reached that age now where a bunch of my friends are waving bye-bye to their kids and they're leaving and you realize as you look back, man, I'm not sure who was saving who or who was looking after who in this story. The kids go and the parents fall to bits because they are 
brilliant and awesome and we love them, but they are our idols. I want to tell you about a guy that I met at a drop-in centre. I think I've told you a few times that I've worked, I worked at a drop-in centre in Motherwell and it was, um, when I was away studying at Bible College, it was, was an awesome time, really cool opportunity. Um, and all these, all these men and women come in at six o'clock and they're all steaming, steaming drunk. And so you have about 20 minutes where it doesn't, you're just giving them food, really. And then there is the next 20 minutes after that or half an hour after that where they've loosened up a little bit, where they're, just, they're quite jovial and they're quite jolly. But they figure out that I'm English. That's what would ordinarily happen. So they go from being quite jovial and towards the end of the hour, they were like, you're English, eh? It was a bit like that. So there was a bit more... A bit more um, intense chat but there was one guy who just would never stop talking about his son so there's a couple of guys I got to know pretty good a couple of guys who I got to know really well and this one guy kind of not that nobody else made the effort but kind of took care of himself dressed himself well and really sort of tried to make the effort with that kind of stuff and he would talk to me about his son over and over again and I kind of built up a rapport with him and even though the guys leading it had said don't just listen you're a listener you're not, you're not to tell them what to do with their lives. I was like, no, I'm only here for a couple more weeks. Now's my chance to talk to this guy. So I talked to one of the leaders. I said, you know, I think I could really, if, if I could just tell him to straighten himself up, you know, he, he could have a relationship with his son. That's clearly what's going on. The guy tapped me on the shoulder and he said, the guy's son died two years ago. The week after he died, he came back here, having had problems with alcohol on and off his whole life. He fell off a cliff at this point. Why? Because his son was his idol. And his son sounded awesome. He was a soldier in Iraq. I love to hear the stories about his son. And my heart sort of broke as I heard the story. But all of his hope was vested in this man. And this man was a good man. But when all of your hope and your ultimate sense of identity is found in someone, even a good someone, if it's not God, then it ends in heartbreak. Sometimes you can understand why people sort of cynically ask of God, why does, why does God ban idols? Why does he forbid idols? Is it just because you don't want people to have fun? Is that what God's like? He just, just doesn't like us to have a good time. Idols are fun, actually. That's the top and bottom of it. They're a lot of fun. Is it just... Is it that he's selfish and he wants all the glory for himself? Well, there's a bit of that. But I wonder if it's because actually idols in our lives are the worst thing for us. Because they will break our hearts every time. Last point on idols and what idols are. That when we misuse our talents and abilities. You remember last week we saw um, how God wanted to dwell with the people. And he said, I want to dwell with you and I want you to build, I want, you to, I want to share this journey with you. And I'm going to, and if you read through those chapters, sort of 22 through to about this chapter, God equips the people with skills and gifts. So there's men and women there have never stitched before in their lives. And I, I quite like the idea of this. All of a sudden they're like, I'm an awesome craftsman. Actually, just out of nowhere, I'm really good at this. And, and there's this beautiful picture of, of God sharing this picture, with, of sharing this, the journey of his dwelling with the people. And then there's the, the awful kind of reality at the point of this story that we're in just now is that God equips the people in this way. God says, I'm going to save you, I'm going to redeem you, and I'm going to dwell with you, and you can share in that, and I'm going to equip you so that you can build my temple and, we, and I can stay here with you. And God equips them, and the people 
choose to use those skills to make a golden calf, another God, and mean that actually God can't dwell with the people. That's why it's a heartbreak. God does all this for the people, equips them, skills them, and the people say, here's how we're going to use this gift. Um, part, of the, part of the general pattern of the New Testament, in Paul's letters in particular, he bangs on about the way that God has equipped his people with fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, patience, patience, love, joy, patience, patience, kindness, generosity, self-control, the gifts of the Spirit, gifts to equip the church, gifts to build the church up. He's given us stuff to go out and do. He's got a plan for this universe so that we can dwell with him. And part of the tragedy for God in this story is that we, we go and build a cow. We take these incredible gifts. I don't know if you watched... Maybe you watched the England-Columbia game and you saw the Colombian guys praying before the game and I was like, I want England to win, but these guys have got faith. Man, we might be in trouble. And, and, and they're going to show the glory of God. They were praying like this. They were looking towards God and then they went around and, I don't know, butchered England to death, didn't they? Just kicking them and rolling around all over the place. So that, and it was almost like you've got these awesome athletes, these awesome dudes who could really bring glory to God and then the picture is actually... Nobody's going to see God if people behave like that. And the reality for us is that that's a bit what we're like. God has equipped us in this awesome way to, you know, so that he can dwell here and be seen here. And often what we do is just something else with these awesome skills and gifts. It's the tragedy that we choose the idol. Paul sums it up like this in Romans 1, 18 to 25. And I'm sorry I've not included that in the text, but listen in. Uh, to what Paul says here. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against, it's quite a long bit, stay with it, against all godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. It's Romans 1, 18, 25. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and foolish, hearts were, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being birds and animals and reptiles. Verse 25, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. That's the heart of God in a nutshell. He redeems his people. He saves his people. You see it clearly. They know it clearly. And the tragedy is that they rush off and they make an idol. So the question for us as we think about the world that we live in as we think about the idols that consume all of us and consume everybody, is how do, we, how do we not do this? God says, turn from idols. How do we turn from idols? The answer is a pretty dramatic change. God says, you're going to need, you're going to need something special. You're going to need something to really turn your life around. Ezekiel, uh, when he, a prophet in the Old Testament, when he looked at the way that people were carrying on, he sort of described what was going to happen when Jesus was going to come, when the grace of Jesus would affect people. He said, it's going to be like this. I'm going to give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I'll remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees 
and be careful to keep my laws. What's going to happen when Jesus comes? We're going to be changed by a story of grace. I want to tell you about one more guy. I read about him last week. Really, really cool story. Short story. We're nearly done. Um, a guy that's in finance. Kind of. So I read this. I started reading this and I couldn't really put it down. I thought, man, that's really interesting. The guy that's, guy that's in finance and he was... He wasn't, do you know that way when you read between the lines like this guy's not a good guy? But actually you can see that he's not had a great life and he's kind of, he was in finance and he was kind of like, I'm just going to, I'm going to get my head down and I'm going to try and, I'm going to try and do the best for myself. I'm up against it in life already. I don't, you kind of read between the lines, you think this guy's had a hard life, maybe he's an unfortunate appearance, that kind of thing. And he's like, I'm going to really work hard at this. And money becomes his God. And as I'm reading through the article, it's like he just messes over more and more people to get to the top. That's the storyline. And, and there's people writing back into it saying, oh, this guy is a scumbag. This guy's the worst guy ever. And then at the end of the story, you read about this guy and he gives all of his money away. And you read it and you're like, how did that happen? How on earth is that possible? This guy was... Money was his whole life. What on earth happened to this guy that he might give all his money away? Do you know what's really weird about this story? You know this guy. I know this guy. Zacchaeus. You know the little guy who climbed up the sycamore tree in the Bible? It's Zacchaeus. He met Jesus. And his story changed from being one where money and pride and achievement, something like that, was number one. And he was replaced, when he met Jesus for dinner and he asked him into his house, was replaced by the story of the grace of God at work in Jesus Christ in his life. That became the main thing. And it totally changed his life around. When the main storyline of your life is grace, it's not just the case that anything's possible. It's the case that anything is probable. It's probably going to happen. If that storyline sits there as number one, if the story of the cross that's changed you and has moved you, then the idols are going to drift away if that's the story. Now, there's a real rub to this story, and I love it. I love how it's written. Go home and read the story of Zacchaeus because it makes you ask a question. It tells the story of salvation and makes you go, what? What is salvation again? I'm sure I knew what it was. I'm sure I knew what it looked like. Jesus says in this story, go away and read it. Today, salvation has come to this house. What happened in the story? Did the guy get on his knees and repent? Was he baptized? Was there a prayer? I'm sure all this happened. But but what the writer, what God in his wisdom chooses to tell us and leave us with is the story of salvation is of a guy whose idols were money and who got to know the grace of God and then everything changed. Question to leave you with. There's been a few questions today. How do you know if you're saved? Ask yourself the question, what is it that saves me?